For Israelis, the world is dramatically different today than it was two months ago. For those of you trying to keep up, we know it can be challenging. This place is impossibly complex, constantly changing. So, State of Tel Aviv is introducing a new weekly feature, the look back and ahead every Sunday. I will have a lively chat with one of the most well-informed political and military analysts I know, Yaakov Katz, who is currently a fellow with the Jewish People Policy Institute and former longtime editor of the Jerusalem Post. Today is the first of our weekly updates, in which we discuss what life is like in Israel these days, as well as the top issues, hostages, soldier deaths, capture of Hamas terrorists, and what, if anything, is the game plan. I'm Vivian Berkovich, former Canadian ambassador to Israel and founder of State of Tel Aviv. Stay with us. Good afternoon, Yaakov Katz. How are you this Sunday? Good to be with you, Vivian. And great to kick off our regular Sunday series with State of Tel Aviv, looking back at the week past and forward to what's coming. And God knows we'll never run out of what to talk about, will we? Not in this country, no. No, not at all. So last week was actually my first week back. I'd been uh, in Canada most of the time for the last four months, and it's a different country that I came back to. I felt it. You've been here, obviously, most of the time, but I find it quiet, a little eerie, just not the level and energy that I'm accustomed to. Are you accustomed to that by now, or do you feel it? It's much better than it was in the beginning. In the beginning, people were not out. People did not leave their homes. The streets were empty. It was like a ghost town. I live in Jerusalem. You live in Tel Aviv. But going to Tel Aviv was the same thing. I mean, people were scared. There was that collective feeling of fear, humiliation from what had happened to us on October 7th, and just that we might be destroyed. Obviously, that was never real, but the feeling was real for people. I think it's much better now. I remember a couple of weeks in, three weeks into the war, someone says to me, can we meet for lunch? And I was thinking to myself, are we allowed to do that? Are we allowed to meet for coffee and lunch again? That's allowed? That's back to normal to an extent. But again, like here, take this week. Vivian is Hanukkah. Okay. I got four kids. My oldest is in the army. My three younger ones are home because school's off. Can you go away? Are you allowed to go away for a night to a hotel? We personally were supposed to go to Europe and we're supposed to go skiing over Hanukkah. I had booked it, paid for it. We obviously canceled because of the war. But I was thinking the other day, can I go even, can I take them away for a night? I mean, they're home, they're doing nothing, right? Can I take them to like, and you don't know, it's, you don't know what's right, what's wrong. There's a war going on. There are people who aren't in their homes. They're staying at hotels. Can you go stay at a hotel? It is just somewhere. It's a very, it's a rich man's dilemma to an extent. Well, it's a lot of guilt though, but even if you're not a rich person, so I'm glad to know that you are. But No, you, I mean, I, a rich man, these are my problems. I know. These are know, first world to... problems. Having said that, I was in Toronto in lots of events, big event time of year, November, and it was someone's 60th birthday. And they were making a huge party at the Art Gallery of Ontario, very fancy affair. And I know somebody who was going to it. And I said, people have parties? Like, you do stuff like this? I said, what do you do? You talk about the hostages? Because most of the people there are going to be Jewish. And she said, actually, yeah, that's how it turned out. So it's weird. I think that everywhere, especially here, but also in diaspora communities, there was this kind of suspension where you just, you, you can basically, you breathe and you just live and you listen to the radio and follow the news. 
and people are trying, I think, to get out. But it, there's a lot of guilt and a lot of confusion and a lot of angst. I mean, I went last night, Saturday night, I was at Hostage Square in central Tel Aviv. And you just, the agony is palpable. It's all of the hostage families and people who support them, probably tens of thousands on a Saturday night. The hostage families, some of them come up and speak. Some hostages who have been released come up and speak and talk about their travails and how important it is that we stay focused on this disaster. And you leave there and it's, I'm hungry. Yeah. Can I go out for dinner? It feels wrong. Focus on anything other than the war. Yeah. And especially, I mean, there's not, a, I just this morning, I heard of somebody I grew up with who was in, who's in Gaza fighting, got shot. He's okay. But it's every, it's almost every other day or at least once a week, one of the dead people you somehow know there's a ship to go to. I was in a shiva last week. It's always out there. And that's what makes it very difficult to, there's no disconnecting here, right? I think no. I think outside that's of right. Israel can more easily disconnect here. It's impossible. Yeah, no, it saturates everything and permeates everything. So let's talk about some of the bad stuff last week quickly, and then we'll get into what we think might be coming. We're all very attuned, of course, to any soldiers that might've fallen the day before, the night before. I live right under the path for helicopters flying to Ichilov Hospital in Tel Aviv. So I have a pretty good idea of when things are not going so well. But among the deaths last week, and there were quite a few, Gadi Eisenkot, former IDF chief of staff and currently a member of the war cabinet, lost his son, his 25-year-old son, Gal, in action on yeah. Thursday. And then incredibly tragically, the following day on Friday, his nephew, his 19-year-old nephew, also fell. When things like this happen in Israel, Try to explain to people who don't live here what that does to the country, how that just reverberates throughout everything. Stories like this are, are traumatic to an extent. I mean, they show just how small the country is. They show yeah. how everybody's in this together. It's, it's a very Israeli experience almost, where you have the former chief of staff, somebody who is one of the highest level people in the country, is now in the war cabinet, is a minister, is making these decisions. And his son is killed, a reservist. And then a day later, his nephew is killed, right? It's just, it shows how you could be the son of a senior minister. You could be the son of a construction worker and the son of a wealthy high-tech entrepreneur, and you're all in it together. And what happens in, inside Gaza, I don't want to say it's random, but it is random to an extent, right? It's, it's one day there's a clash in the North that goes that ends tragically. The next day, it's in Khan Yunus in the south. Every day, we're unfortunately sustaining casualties and people and soldiers are getting killed. This is a unique, this is quintessential Israeli experience to an extent of what Eisenkot has gone through, his tragedy. I mean, we all are familiar, for example, with Miriam Peretz, a mother right. who lost two sons in two different incidents. But this is part of Israel. This is what happens here. Are you concerned with what is going on in Israel? This is not just another crisis. State of Tel Aviv is committed to delivering superb and candid analysis, and we're offering a limited-time subscription special, a 33% discount from the regular fee of $90 annually, one year for only $60. Stay informed and stay connected with State of Tel Aviv. 
We are a reader-supported enterprise. If you value our work, please subscribe. It makes a huge difference. Stateoftelaviv.com. All one word. Now, back to the podcast. The hostage issue, which goes on and on. We now have, we think, what, 138, 139 hostages, some of whom are alive. It's highly unlikely that all of them are still alive. And on Tuesday afternoon, Prime Minister Netanyahu, along with Benny Gantz and Gadi Eisenkot, these three members of the War Cabinet, met with families of hostages. And it sounds from the news reports and whatever I've read that it was a pretty testy, tense meeting. And Bibi made a comment in the course of that meeting saying, the price we have to pay to get all of the hostages out is just too high a price. Even you, families, even you would say it's too high a price. I mean, that was possibly one of the most ill-advised comments the prime minister could have made. And it was repeated last night at Hostage Square when the father of a young 18-year-old girl, who is the youngest woman being held hostage now, and he spoke and he said, who says that? What kind of comment is that to make? You're all parents. No parent in the world could name a price too high to get their child back. Now, obviously, he's speaking from an emotional place, and Bibi was speaking from a very sort of technical, detached place. And in fact, a lot of the there was someone on the news that night who said he he was very detached, Bibi. He just wasn't in the room and on the level with us. And they said from Benny Gantz and from Gutty, they felt that they got more real talk stuff. What do you think is going on with this hostage thing? Because what I think is they can't make up their mind because they vacillate our war cabinet. And the mixed message, I think, must be just devastating for the hostage families. I think there's two parts to this question. The first is Netanyahu himself, that when he's made some comments in the last week, especially that really have shown a detachment or a disconnect that you shouldn't be seen from the leader of a country during a time like this. One of them was that comment that you mentioned in the meeting with the hostage families. The other one was, if you recall, after the shooting, this is already now over a week ago, at the entrance to Jerusalem, there's a terrorist attack and Yuval Kesselman, this young middle-aged man, gets out of his car, pulls out his sidearm, neutralizes one or two of the terrorists. Then he was shot by a reservist soldier. And even though he was lying on the street and yelling, I'm Jewish, I'm Israeli, he takes out his identity card. He still gets shot and killed very tragically. And people wow. start to say, this is because of very lax regulations to allow people to have guns, even though the guy who shot him accidentally was a reservist soldier and misidentified him. But Netanyahu in a press conference later said, that's life. Yeah, I right? saw that. I, I heard that. Yeah. That was- and it was like, what? Yeah. And he had to retract. He, he got slammed by Benny Gantz and Gadi Eisenkot, who attacked him, you know, who criticized him on, on, I think it was probably Twitter. And then he released a statement and he called up the father of this Yuval, who was a hero. This is not life. No, this is not what's meant to happen. So, yeah, no, he got into like law of averages, as I recall. For every 20 times this works out well, so every once in a while it doesn't. I was like, who are you? It could mean, and we put the two together, what I was thinking was that it maybe shows that where Netanyahu's head is. He's managing this conflict from a position of, as you said, technical, 
He's looking at things that the dry numbers, he's trying, maybe he's incapable of emotional connectivity at this point, or he's trying not to be emotionally connected. There was mm. a very powerful photo that came out of him at the funeral of Gadi Eisenkot's son, Gal. If I'm not mistaken, it was the first funeral that Netanyahu has attended since this war broke out about over eight weeks ago. And Israel has buried by now about 1,400 people. So the fact that the prime minister has attended, I think, just one funeral, he's been to barely any shivas, also might be impacting this emotional disconnect. Because when you attend funerals and when you go to shivas and you talk to the hostage families, it's hard not to get emotional. So that, that's number one, just talking about his state of mind. Number two, with regards to the hostages, look, I've always had a problem from the beginning. I think you and I spoke about this, of what are the interests or what are the conflicting objectives that Israel has in this operation or in this war? One is to degrade Hamas capabilities and to hopefully topple it as being the governing entity over Gaza. However, that exactly is achieved is very complicated, right? And the second is the hostages. Now, we were able to take a pause, which was risky, and get back about 100 hostages. But there's still, as you said, 138, 139 who are being held in Gaza. But at this stage, mostly just men. Israel's question now is, what happens if tomorrow there's a deal suddenly on the table that says, pause again the fighting, get back the hostages, or get back some of them? What does Israel do at that point? Because the ultimate objective, which is to provide security for the entire country, would dictate to continue to fight and not to right. stay. But the hostages are obviously a big component here. And I, I think that these decisions are probably the most complicated and difficult that there are. And that original decision, by the way, I, I know from you know hearing people in government, Gadi Eisenkot was one of the people who pushed very hard for that original pause that some people, Netanyahu, for example, was more skeptical of reaching a deal on taking a break and to release the hostages. And Eisenkot, for what it's worth, was one of the people who said, no, we have to stop and we have to get back these people. I, I think it's very, these are very difficult issues to work through. I don't envy anyone in the government who has to make these decisions. No, neither do I, because no matter how it turns out, it's not going to turn out well. You're Even... dealt a bad end no matter what. Exactly. It feels from what you hear and what's on the news and the comments that various people make on Twitter stolen glances at them in these press conferences. It doesn't seem to be fabulous, fabulously positive chemistry between Bibi, Gadi, and Benny. Is that the understatement of the century? And Gal And Gallant. And Gallant. Sorry, I left him out. I mean, think, think of it like this. Bibi is fighting for political survival. Right. Okay? Bibi's in election campaign mode already, right? Yeah, if yeah. you noticed the, 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 his new slogan, and I, I compared it in the 90s, right? in 96, he beat Shimon Peres with the slogan, Paris will divide Jerusalem. That became the slogan. And that's what, and making the election about him being about the Jews against the leftists, the people who are Jewish or Israeli. It was that, it was that division, that line that his old time veteran political consultant, uh, Arthur Finkelstein came up with, but it was that Paris will divide Jerusalem. Now, what's he talking about? I'm the only one who will prevent the Palestinian Authority or deny the Palestinian Authority the ability to return to control Gaza. And he's going to run with that. And he's going to run with that and say that only I can stop them because I can stand up to U.S. pressure. But Benny Gantz, Naftali Bennett, and everybody else will surrender to the pressure from the Americans. So he's in campaign mode. 
He's extremely suspicious of Benny Gantz, who's at 40 plus seats in the polls, way ahead mm-hmm. of him. He's extremely suspicious of Joel Gallant, who, let's remember, he had fired Gallant, and only because there was a massive eruption of protests back in, right. what was it, March. March? March 26th. There you go. Only in, because there was that massive eruption did he yeah. walk back the, the dismissal of Gallant. So he's suspicious that Gallant is planning a coup, maybe in the Likud. He doesn't have anyone he can really trust around him. And there's no love lost between any of these men. I mean, Benny Gantz and Bibi Netanyahu, this is the guy got Netanyahu promised in on TV, no tricks, no shticks. Remember what the government they found did around COVID mm-hmm. 2020? This guy doesn't know a life without tricks or shticks, Netanyahu. Well, so, but he, he does have Ron Dermer around him, who he trusts totally, I think. And I think um, Ron Dermer is an important, extremely, thank God that Ron Dermer is in the cabinet and thank God that right. Ron is in government. Because otherwise, everybody around Netanyahu is, is no one stands up to his level. Yeah. I, but I mean, the thing with Dermer is that he doesn't really have the political clout that any of the other guys have. Dermer is BB's guy. Wouldn't you agree? He, look, Dermer doesn't have the political clout in the Likud party, although he's respected by Likud but, members. But he's not a player. He's not no, a Likud He's not player. a player in the party. He's not a player. Yeah. And the public, by the way, I would say probably 90% of Israelis don't even know who he is. I know. Right. He doesn't, he never interviews, he doesn't speak, he doesn't go, he's not, he's, you don't, you'll never see him publicly. He doesn't go to events. He's not that politician, but he is extremely important at times like this when you need very complicated coordination between the Americans and the Egyptians and the Israelis and the Saudis. It's, it's good that we have people like him next to Netanyahu, because if, if he wasn't there, I'd be even more concerned. Absolutely. And he's got deep, really real, credible relationships with all of those Gulf states and the Americans, even if they're on the other team. Okay, let's take a quick look forward. We also had some dramatic photographs of Hamasniks, Hamas terrorists who were smoked out, flooded out out of their hiding spots or who just plain surrendered. They were stripped out of their underwear, presumably to ensure that they did not have weapons uh, on their body concealed. And then they were made to sit down or kneel and sometimes blindfolded, sometimes hands behind their heads, lots of consternation, horrified comments from around the world about, oh my gosh, look at those horrible yeah, ladies. I, I saw these, and I was getting, it was getting sent to me by journalist friends from America. Yeah. This is horrible. And I, I'm like thinking to myself, but these people who were discovered in an area where they were told, do not be here. So if you are a man of combat age, you're a male, you're found in this area, you might not be holding, because they're like, oh, I, I saw, like people were saying, I saw my brother there or a journalist there. Very possible. Okay, and, the, and then some of these people were, I know, were now released. But if you find a male age combatant or, or, or a potential combatant in this area, now mm. why do we strip them down? Well, someone's like, how could you strip them? You're just humiliating. No, we're not humiliating them. They wear explosive belts. I mean, we know this, right? They blow themselves up on our soldiers. They blow themselves up on, on our civilians. Of course, you're going to make them strip down. I mean, what is wrong with people that they think that this is a walk in the park? This isn't Disney World. This is a war that is going on in Gaza that was compelled upon Israel. Stop expecting things to look like a walk down Fifth Avenue in New York City. Why would those photographs, though, be issued even? I don't even know. If, first of all, I don't know who took them. I don't think they were taken by the IDF. Somehow okay. they could, it could be their associated. But you know what? Even if they were taken by the IDF, it's also, you have to remember, and, and this ties into another thing. Ian Bremer, the veteran yeah. big thinker, right? Foreign policy expert. 
Tweet who has an aversion to using capital letters in grammar. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I saw that too. But <laughs> Tweets the other night a picture of an Israeli flag in one of the downtown squares of Gaza. Saw that, yeah. Why does Israel need to put up a flag? And I'm looking at this, I'm like, you totally don't understand what warfare is. And that's the same thing with the picture of these people. A lot of what happens today is about symbolism and perception. And it's information war as well. It's impacting the opinion and the thinking, the mindset of your adversary. When they see an Israeli flag waving in downtown Gaza, it makes it feel for them that they're losing. When they see their men lying to bend down on their knees, hands up behind their back, behind their heads, naked because or, or stripped down to their underwear because of the fear of explosive belts, that is, is humiliating. And that makes them also feel like they're losing the war. That is important because you need to bring and collapse a, a mindset and a, and, a, and, a, and a feeling of confidence on your enemy's side. That can't just be done through classic military means. It's also part of the perception war. They do it to us. We also have to do it to them. It's the same thing. And that's why these things are done. Even if that, that picture with those prisoners was not taken by the IDF, right. I don't have a problem with it being taken by the IDF. So what do we look forward to this week, Yaakov? More of these kinds of incidents of Hamas terrorists surrendering or being forced to surrender? We're in Khan Yunus. We've got apparently a very strong presence there in southern Gaza. And we're hearing that maybe the war will wrap up in three, four weeks. We can really break the back of this and get most of the work done and then remain engaged over the following months as a kind of opportunistic insurgent force on an as-needed basis. What do you see this week bringing? How do you see it going? Look, as you said, the, the troops are still operating very much on the ground. There's a lot of battles and fighting that takes place in some parts of the north, in a place called J J Jabalia, in the center of Gaza, in a place known as Sajaiya, where a lot of the Golani soldiers are fighting right now. And then, of course, Khan Yunis, which is where Israel believes some of the top Hamas leadership is, is still holding. So that, that there's still what to do into cleansing out those areas and to smoking out those terrorists. And we saw the failed hostage rescue operation the other night. Two soldiers were wounded. No hostages were there. But we might see more of that. Hopefully, something can happen and move in that direction. One question that remains to be seen, as I would say the three big questions that probably accompany us this week. One is going to be what happens to Rafa or Rafiath, as we call it. That's that town that straddles the 14-kilometer border with Egypt. They have an underground highway there of where they have tunnels where they smuggle in a lot of the weapons and supplies. So far, Israel has not operated there mostly because the Egyptians have told them they don't want them to. But Israel, it's a question, will Israel start to go there, not go there? We'll have to wait to see how that plays out. Number two is the growing pressure on Israel for a ceasefire. We see it from all over the place, how the diplomatic world works. So this is, this is just the beginning. I think what we saw at the UN the other day, the Americans kind of with their finger in the hole of that dam. Yeah. It's... How much longer can the Americans do that? I don't know. And, and we're starting to hear Blinken talking differently. Kamala Harris now has started to speak up, and she's been critical of Israel. Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense. Biden is standing strong, but we have to assume that this is all coordinated to some extent. Mm -hmm. And then the third piece of it is what everyone really wants to know, and that is, what is the day after going to look like for Israel? And Netanyahu has not really laid out a vision of what that is. And I would say these are the three kind of big 
question marks that Israel has to deal with. One is obviously the operational stuff on the ground, continuing the combat, hopefully achieving goals. Two is the ceasefire calls. And three is just the day after. What do we really want here? Because we say what we don't want, but what do we want? And that's important to start to articulate to, the, to ourselves and to the world. Yeah, there's what do we want and what's within the realm of possibility, given this crazy neighborhood we live in. Yaakov, thank you so much for that. We'll check in next Sunday and talk about what actually did happen. Always a pleasure, Vivian. Have a great week. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. We'll keep the dispatches coming as frequently as we can. If you like what you're hearing, please take a moment Rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can check out our full library of articles and podcasts at our website, stateoftelaviv.com. State of Tel Aviv is an independent media venture, and we rely on subscribers to support our work. If you are not yet a paying subscriber, please consider taking the plunge today. Each person really does make a huge difference, especially in these very challenging times in Israel it is important that you stay informed and current and seek out a range of perspectives. This is a pivotal moment in Israeli history. It is not a time to be passive and disengaged. Thanks for sticking with me to the end. I'm Vivian Berkovich, signing off from deep inside the state of Tel Aviv. <laughs>